Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm one of the bass players here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. Um, actually, I think the, the main reason they wanted me to uh, fill the pulpit this morning is to just, so everybody knows that the pulpit's not only for long-bearded people only. Short beards are allowed behind the pulpit. I will never get confused as Pastor Wes or his twin brother Alex. So this morning, uh, we're continuing our, our series in the book of Philippians, and several months ago, Pastor Ricardo, Alex, and I got together and talked about well, how we wanted to uh, cover these three weeks while Pastor Wes and his family were on vacation. Uh, we didn't want to do a series of one-off sermons. Uh, we wanted some continuity, uh, and we wanted something that was joyful. Uh, we wanted something that had, that had hope, and, and that led us to the book of Philippians, I remember as a kid, uh, I, was, I was being taught the, the main themes of the books of the Bible, and Philippians was easy to remember because it was flipped for joy. Uh, so the, the book that Paul wrote to the church of Philippians, if you don't remember anything else from the sermon this morning, at least remember that, that in, at some point in life, if there's a, a time when you need more joy in your life, go to Philippians. Um, but it is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi that is filled with joy. And um, so this morning, uh, we're going to finish out chapter one. Uh, this is a sermon series that probably is going to continue over the course of several years uh, because we'll probably, either Alex or Pastor Ricardo or I will come back to it at, at later points. Um, so because of that, we're kind of taking larger chunks. That's why we're doing uh, the whole last, basic, basically third of chapter one. Uh, it's a lot to cover. Uh, I'm going to try and keep it uh, upbeat. I tend to drag towards the end of the sermons. My wife reminded me lovingly, and she's right, that I tend to start talking slower at the end of the sermon. I think it's to emphasize points. I'm going to try and keep the energy up. Uh, We have lunch downstairs. It's fellowship meal Sunday. So if you can bear with me for 90 minutes, uh, we'll get through this text (laughs) and get to lunch. Uh, But again, we we wanted this series to be fun. We wanted it to be joyful. We wanted it to, to bring hope, and uh, that is greatly needed all the time, uh, but especially in the age that we live in now. Before we get into the text and, and further introduction, uh, let's open up in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you that we can gather this morning uh, to sing praises to you. We thank you that we can o- open your word and study and see what, um, see what the Holy Spirit has for us. Father, we pray that you would... Uh, guide the sermon this morning and pray that you would guide uh, my words that that you would be honored and glorified that your son would be honored and glorified uh, through the power of uh, the Holy Spirit we thank you for uh, this letter to the church at Philippi and for what we can learn from it as well Uh, we pray that you would be uh, praised this morning Father we thank you most importantly that you have sent your son to die on the cross for our sins we thank you that Not only did he die, but he rose again, and because of his resurrection, we have life now and life for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the main point of the sermon this morning is actually just right out of the text. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So that'll be our main point. We're going to look at a few things underneath that. Um... 
You could also kind of rephrase it, uh, to live as Christ, to not live is gain. And we'll talk a little bit more on that later on as we get into the sermon. But I wanted you to contemplate one question this morning as we're working through our introduction. How is the joy, how is your joy this morning? If you think about life, is it joyful? Is there happiness? I mean, when we come here on a Sunday morning and we're with brothers and sisters in Christ singing praises to God, this is a time of joy. And that's a good thing. That's the joy, that's the truth that helps carry us through the week. But as we get into the weeks, how is your joy? I think there's a lot of confusion here in America when we think about joy because we tend to equate happiness to it. We look at the Declaration of Independence. I'm, I'm guaranteed inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's interesting, though, the Founding Fathers guaranteed life and liberty, but happiness, that's a pursuit. That one's up to you. You can't, can't quite guarantee it. Uh, hopefully you'll find it. Uh, and I think sometimes that does cause a little bit of confusion as how, and as how we look at uh, happiness and joy as Americans. Um, you know, along with that, you know, the Founding Fathers did want that uh, the desire or the goal was that you can make decisions, both intellectual and moral, that that would lead to freedom, uh, and that could result in the best life possible. So even the most famous phrase regarding happiness involves more than just external circumstances. And if we've learned anything in the last two years, it's that happiness can be taken away and replaced with an irrational fear. It's kind of that weight that kind of has weighed over everyone for the last two years. As a side note, people who are afraid tend to be a little easier to control. But as Christians, we've not been given the spirit of fear. God has given us the spirit of power and love and of self-control or a sound mind. So as I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about the culture we live in, the book of Philippians, Paul wrote it to a church, a real church in real time. As we preach and as we proclaim God's truths, we're proclaiming that truth to real people in a real time. And thinking about the last two years and things that have gone on, the thing that kept coming to my mind is that there's just this general sense of uncertainty. Like maybe more so than any stage in life is that we're just dealing with the, a lot of the unknown. You know, as, if I go to the grocery store, is the thing I need to buy going to be there on the shelves? Or the plans that I've made with friends, are they going to be able to show up or is somebody going to test positive and have to get canceled? There's just a lot of uncertainty right now in this world. And that's why we wanted to preach this sermon series on Philippians. It's known as the epistle of joy, as I've said earlier. So what does this text say about joy? What does Paul write to the church at Philippi regarding joy? I think that his response to that question is that glorious statement. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, that's classic, like coffee, coffee mug, t-shirt. I'm pretty sure I've seen it on a coffee mug or t-shirts at some point. Like it's very catchy. It's very marketable. But what does it actually mean? I mean, it's more than just a catchphrase. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So we're going to look at three questions this morning 
as the form of our outline. Why is he so optimistic about life? To live or not to live? And what should be done till death? So we've spent some time in the last uh, two sermons talking a little bit about historical context. Again, this is a book written to a real people, or a letter written to real people in real time. Uh, as Alex shared two weeks ago, the Philippian church was kind of a ragtag group of believers. It was, it was started by a successful businesswoman, Lydia, a formerly demonic girl and a Roman jailer. I mean, that's quite the crew there. Kind of sounds like a typical church though, don't you think? I mean, if we look around the room this morning, let's be honest, it's quite the crew we have here as well. But this is also an encouragement to a healthy church. This isn't a letter to the church at Corinth with corrections. This is encouragement to the church at Philippi that was doing well, and Paul just wanted to encourage them on their journey. Also reminds me of our church. By God's grace, he's done a great work here. Um, so those are the, those are the things that, that we wanted to kind of build into this series as we get into it. Just continual encouragement to stay the course and to continue to follow after Christ. And the last thing regarding historical context was the Philippians, they were proud Roman citizens. Like most citizens in the Roman colonies, they were proud to be Roman. But Paul is going to call them to something else. He's going to say that they need to live their lives as citizens of a heavenly colony by serving God and one another. Not just Roman citizens, citizens of heaven. And what does that look like? And we'll kind of get into that in our, as we get into the last question uh, for this morning. So why is he so optimistic about life? As Pastor Ricardo read uh, the text this morning already, we're just going to go through it a little section by section. So he starts out by saying, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. We see the optimism from Paul right away. He says, I will rejoice. Uh, he's expecting prayers from them. Uh, the help of the Spirit, eager expectation, hope. It's all filled in these first couple verses. So as we think about why he's so optimistic about life, we actually kind of tie this back into Pastor Ricardo's sermon last week. That he's optimistic because the proclamation of the gospel is continuing to go out. As we saw last week, even those that were doing it for rivalry, Paul was excited because the gospel was still going forth. The message, whether the motives were wrong or not, the gospel was still going out. Are our motives right all the time? Not always. But if we're proclaiming the truth of the gospel, Christ and God can be honored through that. So we see he's rejoicing because of the proclamation of the gospel. But also he's anticipating deliverance through Christ. We see that in the, in the chapter, or, uh, sorry, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now the word deliverance there, uh, in the Greek, uh, the Greek word for it is analio. It literally means to break camp or to set out on a last journey. So I know there's a lot of families in the church that enjoy camping. There's a few fami families that are learning to enjoy camping. My family is one of those families that enjoys camping. 
Now, a lot of times our camping trips involve either a long weekend or we just go for a week, you know, take a week off of work and we go on vacation. We stay at one place, but when we break camp to come home, that's not necessarily the, the happiest day of the trip because that means it's over. So we're packing up to go home, most likely to go back to work and or school the next day. So it's different. This is actually more in line with a journey. That when they broke camp, they were heading to another place, and that would get them closer to their final destination. So think of it more like this. So as I was studying this week, it, this reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from uh, the last chapter of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. So this is the end of Narnia, everything's ending, and this is how C.S. Lewis wraps up that final chapter as Narnia's ending, but they're looking forward to the new, he- the, the new heavens and new earth version of Narnia. So he says this, and as he, this is Aslan, who was the Christ figure throughout the series, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one knows, on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the deliverance that Paul is talking about. He's, he's excited about this deliverance, this moving on, this, this setting out, breaking camp, and continuing the journey that God has called him onto, which ultimately will lead to the new heavens and the new earth, uh, as referenced in that quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. But these are the hope, this is the hope that Paul has. So he's kind of crescendoing all of this at the beginning of uh, this text this morning. You can kind of hear it in his language. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that which full courage now is always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The climax, the crescendo of what he's saying at the beginning. For me to live is Christ. It's more than just living for Christ. It is certainly that. But it's life because of Christ. That Christ gives life. For those who have been saved by Christ, we receive eternal life in the future. But we also receive life now. We've been rescued from death that comes through Adam and have been given life in Christ. When we're born, we're born into a covenant of death. That the trajectory of life leads to death with the burden of sin the whole way. That it's only when Christ reaches down and raises us from death to life and gives us life so that we can live and serve him. This is what Paul has in mind. He, he references, he talks about it in his letter to the Ephesians as well. Ephesians 2, that he's raising us from death to life for the purpose of good works. And we also see that at the end of this chapter, or this, uh, yeah, this chapter as well, this morning. We'll hit on it. So these are the reasons for his hope. 
the proclamation of the gospel, deliverance, life in Christ. And then, question number two, to live or not to live? Kind of echoes a little bit of Hamlet. I did that on purpose, to be honest with you. Uh, so in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Hamlet has that famous monologue, to be or not to be, that is the question, contemplating his own suicide. Uh, what we see here, though, in, Paul, in Paul's writing, it's not, this is not just a philosophical muse. Paul seems to be genuinely wrestling with this question. So he, he proclaims that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. All positive. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. There seems to be a change in the tone. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I mean, this really does seem like genuine wrestling with life and death. Now, we have to remember, I think... um, I think it was uh, Alex in the first sermon we talked about the fact that Paul was chained to a Roman guard. He's literally in prison, chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Now, as Pastor Ricardo pointed out last week, Paul used that opportunity to share the gospel with a captive audience. You got to wonder if he was just waiting for the next guard rotation to change. Oh, here comes Phil again. He's going to get more of the gospel this time. So he's, he's redeeming He's redeeming his time in prison, but it's still prison. It's still a sentence, and Paul is still human. So how is it possible that he could be wrestling with this? I mean, we we hold Paul up as as this great apostle, and he is, wrote most of the New Testament, but he's still human. And I think maybe some of this, and again, this is a little speculation, but walk with me on this one. I think some of that desire to be with Christ is because he had seen the risen Christ. As he's going on the road to Damascus to persecute another round of Christians, Christ shows up, tears the veil of heaven, and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, he's seen the end. He knows what the end looks like. And that's causing a desire to be there. I mean, more so, can you imagine if the ceiling opened up and Christ showed himself how we would live differently because of that revelation? So Paul has seen that and experienced that. So that is giving giving him that desire to be with Christ because he's seen Christ. But it also gives him a motivation for service. And Christ showed up and gave him a mission And he lived the rest of his life following through suffering and torture and shipwreck and snake bites and everything endured the mission that God, uh, that Christ had sent him on. And I think those two uh, conflicting ideas, again, it's speculation, but certainly it's true that he saw Christ and Christ gave him a mission And I think that mission is what we see playing out in the next verse. 
because there seems to be a, a, a resolution that Paul has resolved something or something has been resolved in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the very next verse, when he says, you know, he's, he's hard-pressed between his desire to, de- to depart and be with Christ, but to remain in the flesh for it's necessary for your account. We see it in verse 25. Convinced of this, so there's a resolution there. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that whether he's delivered from prison in that moment, next week, next month, there is a resolution. If he has to continue sending letters from jail, he will do that and he will fulfill the mission that God has sent him on. Says that I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. What a, great, what a great sentence. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That there is hope for the future, there is joy for the future because of his potential return to them. So then he leads into this final section this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. For that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you shall not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So this leads us to our final question this morning. What should be done till death? Walk worthy. It's right there at the beginning. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. One thing kind of popped into my head this, this week as I was studying this. It kind of made me think of that uh, scene from uh, Saving Private Ryan. It opened that opening scene where the, the old man and his wife and his kids and grandkids are walking to the graveside and you're kind of dropped in the middle of the story. You don't know what's happening. He just starts weeping. Turns to his wife and says, have I lived a, something along the lines of have I lived a good life or have I done enough? You know, and his family, his beautiful family is in the background and his, his wife's shocked by that. Well, of, of course you have. Like look around. And then you get dropped into the actual story and you see the sacrifices that were made that the commanding officer had sent a letter out to rescue Private Ryan because all of his brothers had already died in the war and they didn't want to send another letter to his mother. And at the end of the story, Tom Hanks' character says to him, earn this, as he's laying there dying. Be worthy of this. What a, like, what a beautiful phrase, but also like, what, a, what a challenge. Like, what, a, what a weight to place on that young man 
Like, earn this. We've died for you. Earn this. Walk worthy. It's not that different, though, when we think about what Christ has done for us. That Christ, the innocent one, died for us so that we would have life. And he asks us to walk worthy of that. To be worthy of what Christ has done. But for Christ, though, it's not a weight. It's not an unbearable weight. For Christ's burden is light because he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. That is our hope and that is our excitement. And that is what Paul is pointing out when he says to be standing firm in one spirit. This is an encouragement, as I said at the, at the introduction, this is an encouragement to the church at Philippi, to his beloved church, not a strong rebuke. This is loving encouragement to stand firm in one spirit and to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel without fear. As I said in the intro this morning, the world creates fear. But Christ calls us to be fearless because our life is hid with him and he has already won. That vision that Paul saw of the risen Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, we're on the winning team. That's the great news. And that's what Paul is calling the Philippians to live as citizens of a heavenly colony, not just citizens of a Roman colony. So he's kind of building through all of this again, kind of like we saw at the beginning of the text this morning, to let your, life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with all minds striving side by side for the faith of the gospel It's continuing to build and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be afraid. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Oh, we love seeing the enemies destroyed. But of your salvation, what's greater than seeing the enemies destroyed? Being saved from that and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. He's kind of building to this crescendo again and then there's this word suffer tucked on the end of it. As we read it in our modern era in a church in America it seems odd. Like we wouldn't crescendo and close with that. But you have to understand this was written to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi had already seen Paul suffer. The jailer is probably sitting in the in the congregation. They've seen, they've witnessed, they've understand suffering. They've seen Paul suffer. They've suffered themselves. So it's not, it, it's not depressing as we would read it. It is meant for encouragement. Because he does say in here, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer. And that uh, prior to that, that it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So what is that clear sign of their destruction, the enemy, the world's destruction, 
but the believer's salvation. I mean, that sounds great, but what is Paul actually pointing out here? I think the next verse is what explains it. That it has been granted not only to believe, but to suffer. So how does that blend with their salvation and the enemy's destruction? I think commentators have made the point that their act of persecution, the world's act of persecution, shows that they are not saved. You, in receiving persecution from the world, is evidence of salvation. That their persecution leads to their destruction because they are out, they are still dead in their sins. They have not been saved. Those that are receiving persecution have been saved. That there is a future. There is a hope. There's hope in this life and there's hope in the life to come because of what Christ has done. It's a glorious passage. Again, going back to that first main theme, that main point of our sermon today. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we've been given life through Christ and that even our death is gain. As we wrap up this morning, I have a few more questions actually. To the unsaved who are here this morning, those that have not been saved by Christ, will your death be gain to you? Not will your death be gain. Some people might actually think your death might be gain. There are terrible people out there. But will it be gain to you? Is there hope of salvation or is death a mystery? I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to happen when I die. Hopefully it's good. Most assuredly, it is not a mystery. The hope that believers have in this life and in the life to come is Christ. That hope and salvation is achieved only by confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. If you confess that and believe that, you can be saved. That Christ was born into real human history. It wasn't just a made-up story, a fable, a parable. There was a real Jesus who lived in real time. He lived a perfect life and was murdered on a Roman cross. As I said earlier, the innocent dying for the guilty. His death covered our sin and his perfect life was credited to us. We don't need just his death on the cross. We need his 33 years of perfection. So that when we're saved by Christ, Christ takes our sin and dies for it, but gives us his righteousness. So that when God looks down on us, he sees Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see Matt the sinner. He sees Christ's righteousness that's been placed on me. I still sin. We all still sin. That's why we have, at the beginning of every, every service on Sunday, a time of corporate confession. Because we are all collectively acknowledging that we still sin. It's not a surprise to any one of us. We still fight that sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ has given us the victory over that. But even with that, God sees us as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. To those that are saved this morning here, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you walking worthy? 
Paul's message to the Philippians applies to us. Are we standing firm in one spirit? There's only one source of truth, God's word. There's only one spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And are we striving side by side in that truth? I love that imagery of side by side. That's teamwork. That's, that's advancing. That's moving forward towards a mission. It's not face to face in disagreement or argument. But side by side, working together to accomplish what Christ has called us to. That reminds me of Romans 12.10. To outdo one another in doing good. It's a competition. We should make it fun. I get a text once a week from a brother in this church saying he's praying for me. I'm sure many of you get a similar text from that same person. And what Paul is saying in Romans is that we should be outdoing one another in doing good. So when I get that text, that should be a reminder to me, I should pray for at least two more people. Can you imagine what the church would look like if we, if we turned doing good works into a comp- in a healthy competition? Not prideful, not boastful. I'm not texting him back saying, yo, I prayed for three people. <laughs> but maybe if I did, then he'd pray for five and it would continue to grow. But it can be competition that we should be outdoing one another in doing good works. And as an encouragement to our church here, like Paul wrote to the church of Philippi as an encouragement, that's something that I see here. I see hospitality. I see brothers and sisters praying for one another, encouraging one another, having each other, having each other over in their homes. Like that is what we have become to be known for. Let's press on. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let up. More hospitality, more prayers, more proclamation of the gospel. That is the message that Paul is giving the church at Philippi, and that is the message that we can take with us. So my last statement this morning, brothers and sisters, there is an encouragement and joy for this life and for death. This life is for Christ, and that is awesome. And our earthly death is gain. And gain is good too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truths this morning from your word. We thank you for this encouraging, joyful letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. We thank you uh, that there are messages for us, that there's, there's truth for us found in these pages. Father, we pray that you would lead us into joy. We have joy. You've given us joy. Help us to realize that. Help us to understand that. We thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you again for salvation that we receive through Christ and that we've been given life to serve you and follow you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. As we come to the conclusion of our service this morning, let's at this time, church, prepare our hearts and our minds for the Lord's Supper. 
for communion is a time, church, where we as a church body testify our faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another. As the time that we re-